Take your Bibles and turn to John 13. John 13 will be our starting point for this morning. The title of the sermon is The Love the World Hates. The Love the World Hates. And we're going to be spending our time, the bulk of our time, in John 15, verses 18 through 27. But just before we get there, just by way of introduction, this is a, a section of Scripture, John 15 that I'd spent a number of weeks on in our ministry, just as we were talking about what is the church facing and the opposition that we're receiving from the world. And besides that, just looking at how Christ deals with all that, because Christ is such a compelling person. He is the the ultimate, I guess, example that we could look at for any area of our lives to see how to respond. And in particular, how he encourages his disciples to respond in his example to the world. But before he gets there in John 13, you might recognize this as the uh, upper room discourse where Jesus is spending the last night of his life with his disciples, giving them incredible instruction and helpful instruction for what they need to know as the days and weeks and months would unfold to prepare them even for the hours that would unfold, the trouble that they would find themselves in just hours from now. And it's such an incredibly enriching part of Scripture because it occupies uh, a significant part of John's gospel. It's worthy of our attention, and certainly because it's the person of Christ who's speaking, it's it's hard to improve on it. And always, when you're looking at the words of Christ, you're just compelled to see areas of your life where so much improvement can be made. John 13 You'll know this passage perhaps is the passage where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he sets for them an example of how they are to treat one another, how they are to serve one another in a selfless and sacrificial manner. In John 13 and verse 14 and 15, Jesus says these words, If then I... If I then, sorry, the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. He tells them later on in the chapter that this is, I'm going to be leaving you, but this is first of all what I want you to do, but I'm I'm leaving. I'm going, but this is an example. I'm leaving you so that you will follow in my footsteps. Ironic that he's washing their feet and we use that expression, follow in my footsteps, But he tells them later on at the end of the chapter that he's about to depart. And they get a little concerned about that. Our leader is leaving us. He just kind of gave us a a very incredible word picture that was very rebuking. Something we should have seen and done something about. He does it. And then he tells us he's departing. They got concerned. Whenever your leader is leaving you, that is a little bit of a heart moment, a heart check moment where we might get concerned. And he tells them in chapter 14, verse 1. Don't be afraid about that. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Orient your mind towards God. Trust in God. Believe in me also in what I say. Disciples are a little distressed. Well, he continues on in that chapter to give them a a glimpse of what their ministry ought to look like and what the role of the Holy Spirit's ministry would be like. And really, by the time he gets to chapter 15, he starts to unpack how they need to relate to him how they need to relate to one another and how they need to relate to the world as final truths for the disciples to to abide in, to think about and to live. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, he tells them they need to relate to him by abiding in him and that there's nothing they can possibly do, no fruit they could bear as believers without remaining in him. In other words, they couldn't live what... Paul would later say would be the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That cannot happen without abiding in Christ. And John 14 even reveals that that kind of a life is going to require the power of the Holy Spirit to, to love one another at that level. So abide in me. How should a true disciple relate to Christ? John 15, 1 through 11 gives us that. He says there in verse 4 of John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Remaining in Christ. Then in verses 12 through 17, he 
tells the disciples how they're to relate to others, other true believers and themselves and one another. The disciples, you remember, were new in the faith. They had attitude issues. You remember them even arguing this evening about who would be the greatest among them. They were immature. They were a rough bunch, rough around the edges. And it seems strange that the Lord would leave the future of his kingdom in such a a motley crew in many ways. But he gives them this powerful instruction that they not need to be thinking about who's the greatest, but they need to be thinking about who can serve one another the greatest. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, than that they lay down his life for his friends. And then he bookends that command and instruction. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Incredible truths. I've given you an example of how you're to relate to one another. I've washed your feet, serve one another in that manner. Sacrificial love is, is key to all relationships. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to do that. Chapter 14, don't get upset about my departure. The Holy Spirit's going to help you and enable you. Abide in me, remain in me through the Holy Spirit. Keep loving, verses 12 through 17. And then he turns to how the disciples can relate to the world. How a true disciple is to relate to the world in verses 18 through 27. And the subject changes dramatically. It shifts from love to hate. Those two great contrasts in life, love and hate. But the hate here is a particular group. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is the command I want you to keep, love one another. But as you're loving one another, as you're abiding in me, as you're living by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's certain things you need to know about the world. There is a love that the world hates. And I want to give you seven characteristics of the world's hatred toward true disciples, true believers. Seven characteristics of the world's hatred towards true believers, true disciples, we might even say true love. Jesus says here in verse 20, if the world hates you. He's not saying that there is some remote possibility that disciples, true disciples, might experience hatred from the world. Rather, he's describing the reality that already exists in the world. The if introduces what we call a first-class conditional sentence. Uh, Don't get too worried about that. It just means this. It's a condition that is assumed to be true for the sake of the argument. A reality that is true for the sake of the argument. If the world hates you, in other words, and you can safely assume that it does, is the way this might read. Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, and you can safely assume that it does, then know this for certain. Know that it has hated me before you. Here's the first characteristic then of the world's hatred toward true believers. It's a hatred that is pre-existing. Pre-existing. You know about pre-existing conditions on your uh, health insurance, don't you? Uh, You go to apply for good coverage and they want to know about pre-existing conditions. Jesus is telling the disciples, you're not going to evade opposition from the world. There is a pre-existing condition in this world. It has a hatred towards me. And by virtue of association, you need to know that it's been around for a while. And if it hates you, don't think you're uniquely experiencing something that I haven't already experienced. He says the world. What, What does he mean by the world? Is he talking about the round globe? Is he talking about... Something else? Is he talking about the people, the created moral order? Yes, John uses that word quite often in the book of John. He uses the word world to refer to the created moral order, the active, the world that's an act of rebellion against God. It's humanity apart from grace. It's the fallen world system that is under the ruler of the air. The ruler of this world is identified in John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, and Ephesians 2. He's uh, identified in, in also in 
2 uh, Corinthians 4.4 4 is the God of this age. Ephesians, the, the ruler of this world, or he gives a slightly different definition there. You can look it up. I'm just not recalling it right now. But he's highlighting the different aspects of Satan's activity here in John. And Paul also does that throughout his writings. Satan has this world as his domain. And his minions are people who give themselves over to this world and its pleasures. They love this world. They love this world's system. He deceives them into thinking this is all there is. This is where life belongs. And so when truth comes at them, they don't appreciate it. And Jesus says, you can know for certain if the world, that world that is being led by him, that world that really includes the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish and Roman authorities. It includes all those who in person as well as in heart would shout out, release to us Barabbas, and of Christ they shout, crucify him. That world that thinks that way towards Christ, you know for sure that if you come up against them, it has hated me long before you experienced it. It's a pre-existing condition. Sometimes we might think, well, I wonder if Jesus just wasn't so radical, would he have gotten so much opposition? Maybe if he just hadn't been so confrontive, you know, like denouncing woes to the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs. I mean, vipers, brood of vipers, it's like John called them. I mean, these guys seem like they were just bringing it on to themselves. I mean, you do a good communications class and you learn how to skin friends and influence people, don't you? I mean, that's the guy that wrote the book. I mean, sorry, how to win friends and influence people. That's right. No, when, when truth intersects with the heart of man, when true love intersects with the world, this is how the world responds. Jesus says, if it hates you, know that it hated me first. It hated him at his very birth. Do you remember King Herod, the megalomaniac at Jesus' birth? It wasn't too happy when he found out that another king had been born, a baby, And so what does he do? He issues a a decree to wipe out all the children under two years of age so that his position, his prominence would not be threatened. He was a grossly insecure man who had a lust and quest for power. And anybody who's putting and promoting themselves first is not going to appreciate the truth and the true love that Christ comes to offer. But this wasn't the only time Christ experienced hatred all throughout his ministry there was opposition. In John 5.16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And verse 18 goes on and says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their tradition, not according to the Mosaic law, but according to their tradition, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Shock, horror. They could not handle the revelation of who Jesus Christ was. And it exposed latent pre-existing hatred in their heart. In John 7, 1, the Jews were continuing or seeking rather to kill him. In verse 32 of John 7, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. John eight fifty nine and ten thirty one, they picked up stones to throw at him. And in John eleven forty seven through 53, we see that they plotted to kill him. Why does the world hate Jesus so much? Why did Pharisees, the scribes, the religious order hate him so much. I mean, don't you find that a curious reality? He did nothing but love, his, love people his whole ministry. Did nothing but heal them physically and then proclaim a message that could heal them spiritually. Why would anyone in the world hate the most benevolent, innocent man to ever walk the earth? In John 7, 7, Jesus gives this answer. The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Its deeds are evil. In other words, there's nothing good enough that the world can muster in its own strength that would ever impress God. There's nothing good enough in and of ourselves that we could ever do that God would look at us and go, yep, he's the one or she's the one exception in all of humanity that will not need my son to die for them on the cross. Doesn't need what he offers. It's ironic, isn't it? The Savior of the world comes to save those who need saving, but instead of loving Him for what He did, they hate Him because He tells them what their problem is. You could never imagine a patient hating a doctor who's offering them a cure to their terminal illness and refuses to believe the diagnosis of their condition. 
Similarly, one of the main reasons the world hates Christ is because he has revealed that deeds are evil and morally corrupt before God. He's revealed what all of our conditions are before him, terminally so. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, as Ephesians 2 tells us. Well, that's why the world hates Jesus. Uh, He says here in, in this verse, at least, and he tells his disciples not to be taken by surprise that they're on the receiving end of the world's hatred because it's, it's a pre-existing condition. Pre-existing. Now in verse 19, he continues to explain why this hatred exists towards his disciples. Not only is it pre-existing, but it's a hatred that is preferential, non-inclusive, intolerant. He says in verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Not a real positive message. Not the one you would advertise to really pack out the stadium if you were wanting a crowd. We hear a lot, don't we, about the the, the talk of tolerance and inclusion in these days. Terms that should pack out a stadium. Inclusiveness. Tolerance. But when you boil down how those words are being used... They don't really mean what they're being defined as, do they? In fact, it seems more like they're pseudo-maxims designed to nobilize that which is really offensive to a holy God and to conceal the real hatred, the real agenda of the world towards Christ and his followers. The world's hatred of the truth in reality causes it to be grossly intolerant, very preferential, very non-inclusive. Look again in verse 19. Here we have another one of those conditional clauses. This time it's what's called the second class condition where the premise is assumed false for the sake of the argument. And we could translate it this way to kind of bring out that nuance. If you did did belong to the world, even though you don't, there's that uh, false uh, premise for the sake of the argument. If you did belong to the world, even though you don't, in that case, if you did, but you don't, but if you did... In that case, the world would love you as its own, or they would keep on loving you. You would never be on the outside circle. They would love you as its own. But because you don't belong to the world, that's the real reality. But I myself chose you out of the world, speaking of their divine election, potentially, and even their commissioning as disciples. Either way, it's divine what happened to them. Because of this, for this reason, the world hates you. Jesus is stressing their selection and their separation. Separation from the world to be in the world but not of it. Separate from the world but not separate to be isolated from the world but to remain in it. And their selection. Selected and separated from the world to be sold out for his mission. To carry on the mission that Christ had inaugurated. To carry on the gospel That's why they were chosen out of this world. So they could be his lights. Selection by Christ and separation to Christ is is one of the reasons why Christians, beloved, experience hatred in this world, isn't it? We understand that idea to some degree to be in the world but not of it. But it's hard to do when it starts to cost you personally. It's hard to remain faithful and want to be associated with Christ and Christianity when friendships are on the line, when your peers and your your circle of influence starts to shrink. Maybe even a, a promotion, maybe even financial cost involved. Why is it that there is such opposition? What is it that Jesus is identifying here about the preferential, non-inclusive kind of hatred that exists in the world towards believers. He says in John 8, 12, that he came to be the light of the world. And we as his disciples are to be little lights or lights also in this world. And he told Nicodemus in John 3 that humanity actually loves the darkness and runs from the light because it hates the light for, the, for fear of its evil deeds being exposed. In other words, when true love, sacrificial love, 
hits the scene, it is light to the darkness of humanity. And whatever humanity is saying about love outside of Christ is not true love. It's still in the darkness because it runs to its own definition because it doesn't want to be exposed for its falseness, its pretense. He told Nicodemus that men love their evil deeds and they don't want to be exposed. They actually run to the darkness. True love The kind of love that Christ displayed to his disciples on this night, his last night with his disciples before he would be arrested and then crucified the following day. In this progression, we can take out by implication that true love exposes and triggers a hatred in the world. Christians are engaged in spreading the glorious light of God's holiness and his love and his forgiveness of sin. But when we do that, it becomes a knife edge for people. When we get all the way to presenting the gospel and those relationships been working at for years. You know that moment, don't you, where you're, you've been working on that relationship and you, you're sensing, is this the right time to share the gospel? And you do, and then what happens? Nine times out of ten, they all say, yes, I believe, and I want to come to your church. No, it's the other way, isn't it? A neighbor doesn't want to know you anymore, or a family member doesn't call you anymore. Because they believe you've got the wrong end of life. Jesus warns his disciples, there is a terminal condition in this world. It's pre-existing. It's it's a hatred of that kind of love. It's a preferential reality in this world. It's a hatred that is preferential. It prefers its own. And since you're not of it, you're going to find also, verse 20, he says that it's a hatred that is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. It's pre-existing, preferential, and unavoidable. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The word that Jesus reminded the disciples of here was that which he had said to them in John 13, 16, after he had washed their feet. He had used the same expression, a slave is not greater than his master. You need to fall in line with your master. The principle that he used there was to apply to his disciples and emphasize to them the need for humility and relationships and mutual service. Here he uses the same statement, the same truth, but this time the target is not one another, not the disciples, but the world. He explains why his disciples would experience, not hospitality, but hostility from the world. If they persecuted me, and many of them did, then know this, they will persecute you also. It is unavoidable. Thankfully, that's not the whole story, though. He said, if they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. you. You won't escape that. But if they kept my word, and some of them did, then some of them will keep your word also. There will be maybe the one out of ten, or whatever the ratio is, that will keep your word, that will listen to you and say, you know what? I do want to know more about that person you live for. I've noticed your life is very different. I do want to come and hear a sermon from your pastor at your church. Tell me more about that. There will be some of those experiences in life, but it's not the norm. One of the best ways to see how Christ's statement played out is to look at the early preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, we sometimes call it. And in Acts 2, 37 through 41... Peter preaches his first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. It's an incredible sermon. It's an incredible occasion. Uh, People are pierced to their heart. We're told in verse 37, they cry out, what must we do? It's it's like the perfect evangelistic opportunity and the perfect response from your evangelistic efforts. Everybody would love that. 3,000 people and a church is planted. That's incredible. Then in Peter's second sermon, more people are saved. And we're told in, John, in Acts 4.4 that the church stood at about 5,000. He's preaching and having an incredible impact. They're hearing his word on this occasion and they're not persecuting him yet. He might have even been tempted with a little bit of pride to think, huh, Jesus never had that kind of a result. You remember, Peter, I hope at this point, it's not recorded for us, but I'm, I'm confident he's not experiencing that. Incredible 
reality to the beginning of the church. And we all love that part of Christianity, that kind of response to the love of God. But it didn't take long before they started to put Peter and his associates in jail. In chapter 5, they get thrown into prison. But the angel of the Lord came and released them. And they continued on preaching, even though they were told, don't do it from the magistrates, from the authorities. You're not allowed to preach anymore. You're, you're having too much an impact on this society. We don't like it. Your influence is outshining ours. It's exposing us. They didn't say that part. They never would. So they flogged them and ordered them not to preach and release them. But did they stop? No. Acts 5.42 we read, And every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. How do you respond? How do you respond? How will you respond if our rights and privileges as believers start to shrink? If we start having those opportunities taken away from us, if it starts to cost us, if the world's hatred ramps up against us to this level, what are we going to do? Are we going to respond like these faithful apostles? I love that statement, don't you? They kept right on teaching and preaching. When they're thrown into prison, Start a prison ministry, right? Just keep on right on teaching and preaching. Doesn't matter where you go. Well, after telling them the world's hatred was unavoidable, Jesus tells them uh, the cause of it. Why would they face venomous opposition? As he's outlined in 18 through 20, look at verse 21. And here we get our fourth characteristic of the world's hatred. It's a hatred that is ignorant ultimately of God. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's, my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Wow. The cause of the rejection and persecution is not because of who they are, but because of who he is. Notice that. All these things they will do to you, not because you're so great and special, but because of my name's sake. When you become a believer, you're associated to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I I kiss my dreams goodbye and I take on the mission of Christ. I take on the purposes of God for my life. That's where I find my new significance and my sense of purpose. It's troubling sometimes, isn't it? When we're trying to figure out what to do with our lives and we don't know what God has made us to be or do, especially when you come out of college in those years. I remember that. Trying to find your identity. Who am I? Oh, who are you? Go to the Apostle Paul. It's no longer I who live. He gets rid of that personal pronoun that seems to obscure so much clarity for life and its objectives. Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Nevertheless, the life I now live I'm still here, but I no longer live for my own purposes and pleasures. I live for Christ. Christ. The world can't stand that. It has a hatred towards that kind of thinking because ultimately it doesn't know the one who sent Christ, who who was sent, uh, who doesn't know the one who sent Christ. That's right. And it can't stand his name. You'll be persecuted because of my namesake. For being associated to me, this is what's going to come. Jesus revealed this all throughout his ministry. It wasn't just a one-off surprise for the disciples on this night. Had they been paying close attention, they would have heard Jesus emphasize this over and over again. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5.11, he said these words, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He didn't say, Blessed are you when people insult you and you take up your right to fill in the blank and defend yourself and say, Nobody is going to walk on me or do wrong to me. I have rights, you know. Oh, this is true fruit here. True evidence of a love that's transformed a life the way it had transformed, was beginning to transform the disciples and needed to transform them to be effective ministers of the gospel. Jesus warned them, And what's known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my 
name. Acts 9.16, speaking to Ananias about the apostle Paul, Jesus declared, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was the apostle Paul, the, the writer of so many books in the New Testament, 13 of them. For my name's sake. Being associated to Christ's name does give us eternal life. And we love that aspect of the truth. Does open our hearts up to a whole new understanding of how to love one another. And we love that aspect. But hatred from the world, animosity, a cost. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Though later this very even evening, Jesus says, rather later on in the evening, he would say to the disciples in John 16 too, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you that he thinks he is offering service to God. That's what the world thinks when it responds to God. They think they're, they responds to believers who are in God. It, it thinks it's doing God a service. The, the false religious system thought that they would help God out. But an hour is coming when When you're going to encounter that, what a shocking statement. Paul thought he was doing that. The same guy who gets radically saved on the road to Damascus thought he was offering service to God when he consented to the death of Stephen and Stephen was stoned to death. Later on, the Lord saves him, obviously, in Acts 9. And he realizes that he wasn't offering service to God. He was actually blaspheming God. It took the power of the Holy Spirit and the appearance of Christ to shock him and make him realize his life was built on hypocrisy. Why does Jesus tell the disciples they will suffer for bearing his name, being associated to his name? I think part of the reason is that we often get wrong expectations, don't we, about what it means to follow Jesus. I think Jesus is calibrating his disciples to think rightly about the cost of following him. Wrong expectations can contribute greatly to disillusionment, discouragement, and troubling distress. A person trying to believe that this is what Christ is, they later come to find out, oh, that's not what Jesus is, that's not what the church is, that's not what Christians are about. I don't know if I want that anymore. The rich young ruler had wrong expectations. Judas had wrong expectations. He thought Jesus was only worth a, a bit of money, a few silver pieces. That's what Jesus meant to him. Hymenaeus and Alexander, 1 Timothy 1.20, they had wrong expectations. Alexander the coppersmith did Paul much harm. He had wrong expectations. And this continues today, doesn't it? Wrong expectations about the truth. Let me quote you an article that I came across a few months ago about a pastor, a former pastor, which seems to be a current trend in evangelicalism right now, to be a, a former pastor and then come out and speak against the church and how you were so badly hurt by the church. Former pastor who most recently led a church called Grace Family Fellowship in Missouri. Renounced his Christian faith. Oh, that's so trendy. That's so cool if you can renounce your Christian faith and act like an insider who's got the real scoop. Look, dead people never have the real scoop. Like all he's finding out is that he was dead all along. Renounced his Christian faith as a system rife with abuse that caused him mental and emotional breaks. A representative from his former church, however, has accused him of being an, unre- an unrepentant adulterer. Well, that's going to cause you emotional breaks. Standing up and preaching to God's people and saying, this is the word of God. A false prophet. This is what he said. After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those an evangelical pastor. Good grief. It took him that long to figure out who he was. I am walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. Well, why didn't you have the integrity to be honest sooner? He began, in the thread, he began saying that in a thread before moving on to compare Scripture to Greek mythology. When I was in eighth grade and I was reading Greek mythology, it dawned on me how much the supernatural interactions between the deity of the Bible and mankind sounded a lot like ancient mythology. That seed of doubt never went away. That's because you never truly believed in Christ. How sad. How sad that this pastor saw the church as a system that could do something for him. Get him something. Make him a better version of himself. He wasn't there for what Christ was calling him to be. He was just coming to church, borrowing from Jesus, trying to improve his station in life. 
And then when he couldn't keep up the gig any longer, when he had no power over his flesh and he became a serial adulterer, then he decided to go public and be honest about who he really was. Love it. That never pays. That never pays. That's a, a life of hypocrisy. And so Jesus here warns his disciples, ultimately people live like that and turn on the church with hatred because they're really ultimately ignorant of God. They don't know the one who sent me and they don't want to pay the price of being associated with his name. The name that is above what? All names. The name that Paul says in Philippians 2, at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Did you catch what he says there? They're not bowing at Jesus. They're just bowing at his name. And the coming day, every knee will bow just at the name of Christ alone. His name is so powerful that it invokes that in hearts that come in confrontation face to face with the reality of who he is. That day is coming. And at his name, that's what will ultimately happen. But for now, there is a price to pay for being associated with his name. And the world does not like that name. One commentator says, Dark ignorance was the great cause of the conduct of the unbelieving Jews. And because of their deep ignorance of God, they persecuted Christ and the early church. Tragic, isn't it? Scripture identifies, though, why unbelievers like that, like that pastor, can't access the true knowledge of God. Romans 8, 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Ephesians 2.1, they are dead in their trespasses and sin. Colossians 1.21, alienated and hostile in mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God for 20 years, claiming to be a pastor and living this way because of the hardness of their heart, it goes on to say in verse 18. Well, despite the world's ignorance, it is fully capable that pastor is capable, I said capable, fully culpable, I should say. That's the fifth point we see in verses 22 through 23. It's a hatred that is guilty and fully culpable. And that pastor is not getting a better life by pretending to come clean and thinking, oh, I'm done with the hypocrisy. I can really be who I am. He's just stalling on what's coming. He's trying to get his pound of flesh now because he couldn't get any victory over his hypocrisy. He's still fully culpable as is every heart that rejects Christ. Look at verse 22 through 23. This hatred is fully culpable. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. You can't separate a love for God and a love for Jesus and say they're two different things. Sometimes you meet people in society say, well, I, I love God, it's just Jesus I don't quite get. Or I love Jesus, I don't really love all the things of God in the Old Testament. He seems a little angry in the Old Testament, for my liking. You can't separate them. Uh, Jesus makes that very clear. And anybody who tries to excuse Christ or separate out their love for God or Jesus is just revealing that there's an underlying disdain for the union that the Father has to the, the Son has to the Father. And because he came as the representative of God, because he came as God's son and fully disclosed, as John 1.18 says, fully unpacked the character and nature of God and his plan of salvation for humanity. Because of that, they are guilty. All humanity stands culpable. There is no excuse. Obviously, Jesus here is speaking specifically of the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders who were hostile towards him. They stood fully culpable, without excuse. Their actions, their motives were being called out. They have no valid reason. Complete revelation leaves them completely without an excuse. They rejected the light of the world. And in hating Christ by rejecting him, verse 23 says, the reality is they also hate the Father. Whatever they say of the Father, the Jews, whatever they say of we're, we're the sons of Moses, we're the sons of Abraham, we love our God. And Jesus saying, that is... That's a false dichotomy because they're rejecting his son. The two are one. So Jesus tells the disciples the world is guilty before God and culpable for its hatred of him. And then in verses 24 through 25, he goes on 
to expose the baseless and irrational nature of this world's hatred towards him. In verses 24 through 25, we learn that its hatred is baseless or irrational. Look at verses 24 through 25. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, no one else could do the kinds of works that Christ did. No one else performed the amount of miracles that Christ did. They would have no sin, but now they have fully informed consciences. Now they have both seen me and hated me and my father as well, but they have done this to fulfill the word which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. I was saying to the people in the first hour that it probably wasn't a great time to be in the health industry when Jesus was on the earth. Uh, he did miracles like nobody else. Nicodemus said, we know that you've come from God because no one could do the works that you do when he visited him. And Nicodemus was the teacher, we're told in that text in John 3, the teacher of all Israel. Not a teacher, but the teacher. And he made a pretty significant assessment. Jesus' miracles were so distinctive that their significance, not only the quantity of them, but the nature of them, made the reality of his claim unmistakable. The Jewish nation should have confessed, like Nicodemus, no one could perform these if they weren't doing the will of God. But instead, the nation as a whole rejected both Jesus and the Father. They loved their sin. They loved their darkness. They ran into that and evaded the light. In John eleven forty seven through 48, we see just how insecure and petty the religious leaders were and how they reacted to Jesus' miracle-working power. It says there, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. We can't let this go on, in other words. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They, they saw his works that were unparalleled as a threat to their status and their comfort in life rather than a merciful revelation for them to consider and change the way of their life. So to reject Christ in the face of such evidence, such overwhelming evidence, was completely irrational. And Jesus said they, they did it to fulfill Scripture. And the Scripture says they hated me without cause, without any reason or real rational understanding. You know, sin is, is irrational, isn't it? You see people caught up and do the most ridiculous things because of their sin. They try and cover their tracks and they get caught. As a pastor, sometimes the most grieving things is having to deal with counseling people in situations of marital infidelity. And it never ceases to amaze me how sometimes those partners go to great lengths to cover their tracks, thinking they're not going to get caught. Sometimes we do that in our own lives, don't we? Sins we've cherished for too long, not trusting that Christ can deal with it, and we become irrational in our understanding and, and foolish and darkened in our thinking. And we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what the world's hatred is rooted in, a lie. And it's completely irrational. When they're loved, like Christ describes love here, they don't actually come under it. They actually hate it. And they run to the darkness. They run to the darkness. And will slam and speak against what you're trying to do as evil. They'll even twist genuine love and call it evil. Listen to the words of Isaiah 5, 20 through 23. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and Sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant in men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. There's been a massive shift in our society, hasn't there? From viewing lying, deception, theft, murder, marital infidelity as moral issues that the church has historically been qualified to speak on and delve into, to now somehow it belongs in the realm of the courts and moral consensus should be derived by the majority. And anyone who calls such things as these as sin is seen as narrow-minded, employing potentially hate speech, and maybe they're even a domestic terrorist. Well, hatred is irrational, beloved. It is without cause. 
It's not a just cause. Why? Because the light of the truth exposes the darkness of the deeds of the world and the deeds it engages in. They want to define the standard so they can eliminate the guilt and shame for what they feel over the evil deeds that they practice, which Christ condemns. His love routes out the darkness in their souls. This is becoming known as, and perhaps you've heard of the term standpoint epistemology, where truth is grounded in one's own personal experience. It's not that there's objective truth that defines morality for me. It's not that there's objective truth that defines how I should live. It's not that there is a master who is greater than I and I should take what he says as truth. It's not that. Standpoint epistemology is I sit above God's word. I'm the judge. I come to church and I assess the ministries of the church and the pastor and what he says and I, and I decide whether or not I should follow that depending on how it makes me feel. Depending on whether or not my experience affirms that to be true or not. It's a subtle shift. We're in the battle for the minds, aren't we? This is what is going on and you see it. There's just an outright ultimate hatred that is baseless, fallacious. I read an article a couple of weeks ago about a Georgia college student in Gwinnett, I believe it is, who in 2016 had been ordered not to hand out materials uh, on campus, not to evangelize, or maybe the wording was more like proselytize. He was only allowed to do that on a small part of the campus, which was a designated free zone speech. And there he could hand out his materials. Someone complained even about that after he had to make an appointment to do that at certain times of the day in a small part of the campus. He did that, but people still complained, and the campus police had to shut him down. The whole thing went to Supreme Court and uh, early part of this year. Uh, strangely enough, even after the, the college changed its policies <laughs> and expanded the free zone speech, uh, it came out of the Supreme Court that the college was in the wrong for having done that and had violated his First Amendment rights. Free zone speech. There's a little bit of that now, but it seems like the world is closing in on around us, doesn't it? We don't know how long we have with that. Before the world's hatred of the love of Christ, Christ's true love, continues to mount and, and those types of realities shrink and who knows, they could be gone. So how do we, how do we deal with that? That seems like a pretty negative way to end the morning, doesn't it? I mean, come on, haven't you got something for me? That's all that we got? We got hatred? Give me something more positive. How are the disciples going to endure in a world like that? I'll tell you how. Not on their own strength. Jesus said, I'm leaving and I'm sending the helper. Because you're helpless. Unless you can abide in me, unless you do that, you will bear no fruit. There'll be no love, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no self-control. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here in the last portion of this section, verses 26 through 27, our last point, it's a hatred that is endured by divine enablement. Look at verses 26 through 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The disciples had been with Jesus in his ministry from the beginning. And they knew what he was like. They knew him from start to finish. They had seen that his life was sinless. They had seen him do miracles that no one else could do. And Jesus now says, my departure is at hand. And I'm handing off to you the responsibility to testify. But guess what, guys? You're not going to be able to do that in your own strength. You try and do that in your own strength, and what are you going to do? You're going to end up arguing about who is the greatest. And they had done that this evening. Jesus is going to the cross, telling them he's departing, and they're worried about their personal market share. Who's the greatest? Oh, me, of course, Peter says, because he's got the most vocal authority in the room. James, John, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that squabble, wouldn't you? Just to hear them. The problem is, Their argumentation would have been an echo of my heart. Don't you think? Maybe I should say that in this way. Their argumentation 
and their clamoring for prominence and significance would have been the echo of our hearts, wouldn't it, beloved? See, without the Holy Spirit's ministry, without Christ going to the cross and demonstrating a sacrificial love, without that, there's no way the world's hatred can be endured. It can only be endured by divine enabling grace. And then not only can it be endured, but he says, testify. You can witness to that neighbor, that colleague. And it may be hard. And it may be painful with that family member who's ostracized you. But you can endure that through the power of the Holy Spirit and keep praying. Keep praying that the Spirit of God that's enlightened you about the darkness you were once in and brought you to the light will do the same to them. And they, their testimony as yours would be one of His utmost goodness, of His grace, of His enabling power, of how it enables us to overcome the ugly hatred of the world towards true love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does expose us for who we are. Lord, it's hard to believe in our small minds that when we love one another, it won't always be received the way we sometimes anticipate it would be. In fact, this world touts love as the solution for all things, a unifying common denominator. But your love attracted and revealed a horrific hatred in the hearts of humanity. You offered them a solution and they crucified you for it. Father, may we not grow cold in our love for you. May we endure through the enabling grace that you give us through the help of the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, who enables us to testify of your love by firstly transforming us so that we can serve those most difficult relationships and prove that the love, sacrificial love that you demonstrated on the cross and by washing your apostles' feet, that is the real love that overcomes all obstacles and reveals ultimately what is in the hearts of humanity. That is a love that you affirm. That is the love that will receive the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. We long and look for that day and for that affirmation. In the meantime, may we be found faithful to apply these truths. In Christ's most holy and precious name we pray. Amen.